0: This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 19. Smash. It was the hottest summer in years, the greatest corn weather, the most bountiful harvest since the war. It seemed to Judith that she never saw her husband anymore. He was out of doors from daybreak till dark, and at night he was asleep from sheer healthy exhaustion as soon as he touched the bed. She grew to hate the summer before it was over. The children, too, were out of doors all day. Sometimes when Judith appeared belatedly for breakfast and inquired for them, she was told, They went with Richard over to the South Forty this morning. This tract of Timberley land lay beyond Little Raccoon. When the men worked there, they seldom came home at noon. They took a substantial lunch with them.
1: Did Thorn go, too? Yes, the men wanted coffee for dinner, so Richard took
0: Thorn along to make it. All day, Judith's mind held the picture of a picnic shared by congenial spirits on the bank of a shady creek. Day after day, it was like that. Thorne never seemed to be in the house when Richard was out of it. Judith took to watching from the window when it was time for his return. If the two came in together, she was wretched. If he came in alone, her unleashed imagination ran rampant. She suggested to her mother-in-law that Thorn be given more duties about the house, indoors as well as outdoors. The work of the farm was doubled during the summer months. Endless preserving of the abundant fruit, drying of beans and peas for winter, cooking for the additional labor employed. The Tomlinson daughters frequently lent a hand, but there was still work enough to keep Miss Anne busy from morning till night. Thorne should be taking some of this drudgery off you, said Judith, ignoring her own remissness. But the older woman did not agree. Thorne does enough for her age. Let her play while she can. Anne Tomlinson felt, as she grew older an increasingly yearning toward the young. She had not felt it so much with her own children, because she had been still young herself. But now that she was old and seasoned with living, she could understand the pain of growing up. She could not look at Thorn these days without a strange compassion. So she said to Judith, Let her alone. This is the last summer she will be a child. May had come and gone, likewise June and July, but there had been no party for the children. Perhaps Richard had forgotten. Perhaps he had been too busy. Since only Judith remembered his plan, there was no one to remind him or be disappointed. In August, the trees hung motionless, heavy with foliage. The air was murmurous with the drone of insects. Judith would go up to her room at night to find it swarming with mosquitoes, gnats, and millers. She would drive out as many as possible with a paper fly brush, then pull down the windows, strip off her clothes, and fling herself upon the sun-baked bed. She might as well have flung herself upon a hot griddle. In a matter of seconds, she was off the bed, divesting it of sheets and pillows, in the delusion that the bare mattress was cooler. When Richard came in, he
2: would gasp, Whew, Why don't you raise the windows?'
0: and immediately fling them wide open. In would troop the old enemy with reinforcements, and the battle with the insects would begin again. There was mosquito netting over the beds— But wire screens were an innovation which had not yet reached Woods County. Judith wondered how she had ever fancied the country would be more pleasant in summer than in town.
2: You don't have to sleep up here,
0: Richard reminded her.
2: There's a bedroom downstairs with an eastern exposure, and it's comfortable on the hottest nights. There's no point in punishing yourself by sleeping up under the roof.
0: He refrained from mentioning the obvious fact that she was punishing him too. He was still very polite in all their intimate relations. If she preferred to swelter upstairs, he would not leave her to swelter alone. But he delicately
2: hinted that he considered it a piece of foolishness. This is the hottest room in the house because it's only a half story. Last summer, when Thorn had it, she used to sleep outdoors in the hammock because she couldn't stand it up here.
1: Judith asked idly. Wasn't she afraid? What of? I see. You slept downstairs last summer?
2: I did, and there wasn't a night that I couldn't stand a sheet over me.
0: She scarcely heard him. Her mind was filled with a picture of Thorn sleeping in a swaying hammock beside an open window. And on the other side of the window, Richard, alert even in slumber, for every moment in the hammock.
2: I wish you'd try it downstairs just one night, Judith. If you don't have the best sleep you've had in weeks, I'll never mention the subject again.
0: Her own discomfort finally drove her to accept his suggestion. Her reluctance in the first place had come more from morbid distaste than superstitious fear. Now, on investigation, she found that the room in summer dressed did not reek so strongly of Abigail as she had expected. The bed was gay with cool, fresh chintz, the fireplace banked with honeysuckle, and the tree-shaded south windows were covered with cotton netting. It was possible to keep both cool and unbitten down here. The candlelit bogeys of a winter fireside vanished in the bright white heat of an August day. She slept one night in Abigail's room. She was fully prepared to lie awake in nervous insomnia or be troubled with fitful dreams. Instead, she slept so soundly that not even Richard's rising at daylight wakened her. He dressed quickly, quietly, and left her sleeping. But as he opened the outer door and stepped immediately into the morning coolness of the dew-drenched shrubs and bluegrass, the comfort and convenience of his old room struck him as never before. He hoped, fervently, that Judith slept till she was rested. He wanted her to be so charmed by this room that she would never wish to sleep upstairs again. The children came around the corner of the house, barefoot and scantily clothed. Ricky and Raji wore nothing but panties, and Thorne the briefest of pinafores. They hailed Richard with the announcement that they were bound for the creek, and invited him to join them in a swim. He hushed them softly, femininely, and led them away from Judas's window. Ten minutes later, stripped to his underclothes, he was splashing in the deepest pool in Little Raccoon, teaching the boys to float. When he offered to teach Thorn, she paddled away from him and climbed out of the bank. He shouted to her, but she called back that she was going to look for berries and ran dripping toward the woods. He decided the boys had had enough swimming and ordered them out of the water, but by the time he had dressed, there was no sight of Thorn. She had disappeared. Judith slept until the sun rose high enough to pierce the east window. There was no net over this window because Abigail had had it nailed down against the winter snows. But there was a window blind, and Judith wished, drowsily, that Richard would lower it. Then she realized that Richard wasn't up and abroad, and she had overslept. She did not rise immediately. The outer door was open, and she lay luxuriatingly in the fresh breeze coming from the south. How silly she had been to hold out against this delightful room. Coming down here was like moving to a different climate. At the first peal of the breakfast bell, she sprang up and dressed briskly. She was so rested, so full of energy that she could think of any number of pleasant things to do this morning. She paused for a last glance in the mirror of the big walnut dresser, which stood in the corner between the east window and the south door. She heard a pane of glass shatter in the window and something hurled behind her to fall with a thud near the door. She screamed, wheeling in alarm to stare at the object that had narrowly missed her head. It was a half brick, heavy enough to have killed her had it struck her. A murmur of voices came down the hall. There were hurried footsteps in the passage and Richard's voice outside
2: the door. Are you all right, Judith? She said. Come in. I thought I heard you scream. He said as he entered. What happened? Judith said.
1: A brick came through that window. It was thrown.
2: Where is it now? Asked Richard.
0: Judith pointed to the spot where the brick had landed. It was gone.
2: Richard said. "'There's nothing there.' "'She stared at the spot, dumbfounded.
1: "'It came through the east window. "'I heard the crash of glass.
2: "'That window is open. "'I got up in the night and pried the nails loose and raised it. "'I guess you heard Millie break something in the kitchen.' "'He said lightly. "'Judith
0: drew her hand across her eyes. "'It was possible that a crash in the kitchen had come "'simultaneously with the hurling of the brick.
1: "'But I saw the brick.' I felt a whoosh of air as it passed my head. Someone threw a brick through that window, then ran around the corner of the house, reached through the door, and recovered it while my back was turned.
0: Richard stepped to the open door and searched the premises with a keen glance. Suddenly, his hand came up with a gesture as involuntary as breathing. Judith said,
1: It's too late to warn her, Richard. I've seen her.
0: Thorne was approaching the house, her apron filled with berries. She was still wet from her swim in the creek. Her dark hair dripped, liquid gold where the sun touched it. The childish pinafore clung damply to her small body. The two in the doorway watched her approach. The man's eyes fixed upon the dripping curls and berry-stained face. The woman's upon the budding curves revealed by the clinging apron. Judith said,
1: "'Did you throw that brick, Thorn?' Thorn said, "'What brick?'
2: "'Judith thought she saw someone throw a brick,' said Richard.
1: "'Where would I get a brick?'
2: said Thorn. "'Exactly,' said Richard. "'Where would she get a brick? There's none on this farm.' He was beginning to speak impatiently. "'Furthermore, there's no brick in this room. Are you right sure, Judith, you didn't imagine the whole thing?' Judith chilled. Though the August morning was already hot, she
0: felt as if there were someone close behind her, not Richard.' Closer than that. Close enough to touch her. She moved farther back into the room, and when something brushed her thigh, she almost swooned. She had backed into the bed.
1: I'm moving upstairs again, she announced. I never liked sleeping on the ground floor. I tried it to please you, Richard, but I much prefer the bird's eye maple room. He made no comment. He told Thorne to go
0: wash her face and hands for breakfast and when they went into the dining room, he explained to the others that some hoodlum had thrown a brick through the bedroom window. That was the first brick. It was not the last brick. Judith heard and saw them intermittently for several weeks, always half bricks, always through the same window, the one Abigail had nailed down. In whatever part of the house Judith might be at the time, she could distinctly hear the heavy thud as the brick hit the floor. She would rush immediately to the south room and find the missile lying where she had seen the first. But when she had hastened to bring some other member of the family to verify what she had seen, the brick would be gone. Because of the heat, the window was still open. Judith no longer heard a crash of glass when the brick fell. Miss Anne suggested closing the window. Then we'll know whether the brick comes through there or not. A shattered windowpane is substantial evidence. You
1: think I'm lying?
0: Said Judith. No, no, my dear. No one doubted Judith's testimony regarding the bricks. She was too intelligent to be suspected of hallucination, as Abigail had been. And her reaction to the disturbance was too sincere to permit a doubt of her veracity. But it's just possible the sound you hear is something outside the house, said Miss Anne. Because no one else ever hears anything. The brick thrower seemed to confine his activities to periods when only Judith was in the vicinity of the south room.
1: But I saw the brick. Time and again, I've seen a brick on the floor. And you always run to fetch someone, which gives the culprit time to make off with it. Next time, pick the brick up
0: before you leave the room. But Judith could not bring herself to touch the bricks. Neither would she allow Miss Anne to close the window. She had a horrible fear of hearing the crash of glass again and finding the brick as usual, and of finding the window pane unbroken. Better to cling to the alternative made possible by the open window and the convenient door. The Tomlinson's searched the countryside for the tramp or urchin who might be responsible for the mischief but no such person was found. News of the disturbance spread throughout the neighborhood and self-elected guards posted themselves at outlying points of vantage to watch for the culprit. But the brick thrower was never seen. Judith insisted that Thorne was guilty. For a time, she was able to persuade others to this opinion, particularly young Will. The bricks always seemed to come when Thorne was out of the house. In vain did Richard caution her to stay within doors until the nuisance could be tracked to its source. When Thorne remained in the house, nothing happened. As the suspicions of the others deepened against her, Richard grew more frantic. He had words with his entire family. He had violent arguments with his wife their disputes, the more bitter because Judith's insistence upon Thorne's guilt was based on a fear which Richard, in his desperation, continually fostered. He had said once lately that he thought it possible the spirit of his dead wife might be plaguing them. He stated now, unequivocally, that only Abigail could devise so cunning a persecution as this incrimination of innocent girl. His words shocked his family, but he did not care. He would fight both the living and the dead in Thorne's defense. As for Thorne, she had nothing to say beyond her repeated assertion that she had no knowledge of this thing. But she grew thin and pale with nervous anxiety. She stayed indoors when Richard so ordered, effacing herself from Judith's eye by industriously helping Miss Anne but when the strain of her position grew more than she could bear, she would escape to the woods in the solitude, which now provided her only respite. Invariably, when she returned to the house, she would find that Judith had heard and seen another brick. One evening, Thorne was returning after a full day's absence. She had fled early in the morning from Judith's tongue, and so hopeless had seemed her plight that she had seriously considered running away and never coming back. But towards sundown, she remembered that Richard would be coming from the fields before long, so she turned her steps towards home. Dusk had fallen by the time she came within sight of the house. The log kitchen glowed with lighted windows and red sparks flew from its chimney. Appetizing odors reminded her that she had had nothing to eat since breakfast. As she started up the slope from the spring house, she saw a familiar figure cross the barn lot and her heart swelled like a homing pigeon's. Richard's home, she thought happily and started running. Judith, watching from the kitchen window, also saw Richard coming from the barn. She, likewise, caught sight of Thorne running to meet him. She slipped outside, determined to forestall the meeting. As she stood watching Thorne's flying figure, she saw the girl pitch suddenly, violently forward and then lie very still. Judith ran swiftly down the slope to be at the spot before Richard. She would spare him the necessity of drying Thorne's tears. But Thorne was not weeping. She was lying still as death and with a great bleeding cut on her head. On the ground close by, Judith saw a half brick. Her first thought was that Richard must not see that brick. He would take it as concrete proof of Thorn's innocence, because Thorne could not possibly have struck herself with the brick at which Judith was now staring. She could hear her husband's pounding footsteps. He was running from the barn. She must dispose of the brick before he reached them. She could not bring herself to pick it up. Richard knelt in the path, lifting Thorn in his arms, cursing softly in his rage and anxiety.
2: My poor cricket. What happened? He asked Judith. Judith said,
1: Put her down. She'll come out of her faint quicker. He laid
0: Thorn gently on the grass. Then he wet his handkerchief in the overflow from the spring and bathed her face. Judith wondered how much longer it would be before he saw the brick.
2: There must be a rock in this path that tripped her he said. Do you see
1: anything? Asked
2: Judith. No. His eyes scanned the
0: darkening hillside.
2: Whatever it was must be close by.
0: He searched the grass. The brick lay near the spot where he had put Thorn. His eyes moved over it as though it were not there. Suddenly, panic gripped Judith. It became more important for Richard to see the brick than for herself to preserve the
1: fiction of Thorn's guilt. She cried. They're stupid. There, on the ground beside her is the thing that felled her. His gaze followed her pointing finger. He said,
2: I don't see anything.
0: Look where I'm pointing, cried Judith, and then stopped.
2: The brick was gone. There's nothing but a clump of grass, said Richard. Here's what probably did the mischief.
0: With the toe of his boot, he scraped the hard-packed earth from an embedded rock in the path. Thorn was beginning to regain consciousness. Richard lifted her in his arms and carried her up to the house. Judith followed, like a woman in a dream. They found Miss Anne in the kitchen with
2: Millie. Get ointment and bandages, mother. Thorn's had an accident.
0: Anne Tomlinson gasped at sight of the girl's bloody head. Millie groaned, Oh, lordy, and set down a tray of dishes with a clatter. What happened to her?
2: Asked Miss Anne. She was running up the hill and took a nasty fall.
0: What tripped you, child? Thorne muttered. I don't know. She was feeling faint again. I don't know what happened.
2: Richard said. Luckily, I saw the whole thing. So did Judith.
0: He then described the incident. Young Will and Jesse Moffat came in while he was talking and listened with interest. There was a rock
2: embedded in the path which must have tripped her. Finished, Richard. "'At least, it was the only thing we could find. "'And we both looked, didn't we, Judith?' "'Judith said coldly,
1: "'Thorn didn't trip over anything.'
2: "'What do you mean?' said Richard sharply.
0: "'Judith said to Thorn,
1: "'What did you do with that brick?' "'What brick?'
0: said Thorn blankly. "'Richard said, "'What are you talking about, Judith?'
1: "'When I reached Thorn, there was a brick on the ground beside her.' "'Judith's face was pale.' But there was no hysteria in her voice. I pointed it out to you, Richard, but you pretended not to see it until Thorn had time to conceal it beneath her skirt.
2: Judith, do you accuse Thorn of giving herself a blow that knocked her unconscious?
1: No, I accuse her of taking a stage fall, first dropping a brick beside the path to make it look as though she had been struck down by our brick thrower. But the idea of Thorne's having a heavy brick bat concealed on her person was
0: too preposterous to be credited. Besides, the girl's injuries were serious enough to preclude malingering. There was outspoken, indignant rejection of Judith's theory. Jesse Moffat, however, was inclined to agree that Thorne might have been struck by a brick.
2: If Judith says she's seen one, I reckon she's seen it. Somebody might have made off with it before Richard got there, but it couldn't have been Thorn, with her knocked unconscious. Richard said, If Judith did see a brick, then this clears Thorne of throwing them.
0: Will's eyes rested on the girl as though he were ashamed of the stand he had previously taken. Judith made one last effort.
1: It's been your contention, Richard, that these bricks have been thrown for the purpose of incriminating Thorn. In that case... Why would her enemy exonerate her by striking her down? He had an answer even for that.
2: The malice that failed to drive her from home might have decided to kill her and have done with it. Without another
0: word, Judith left the kitchen and went up to her room. She felt as though she had reached the limit of her endurance. All during these terrible weeks, she had clung to her conviction of Thorn's guilt as a drowning man clings to a spar. Now it had been wrested from her by a wave which threatened to engulf her. For if Thorn was not guilty of this mischief, whence came those bricks, and whither did they go? She had seen them again and again, yet when she brought others to view them, they were never there. Who besides herself would go to any lengths to prove they had been thrown by human hands? Her desperation furnished the answer, lighting a candle she sat down at her desk, took a fresh quill pen and rapidly covered a sheet of notepaper with her clear, impersonal handwriting. When she had finished, she locked the letter in her desk, pending an opportunity to mail it. There was cessation of her torment after that. For weeks, the letter lay in her desk, not forgotten, but postponed like a desperate remedy to be used only in extremity. Then, when the harvest was in and Richard made his usual trip to the city, Judith was ill and unable to accompany him. Instead of deferring the excursion, he went off by himself, returning late the same day, pockets bulging with gifts for everyone, and bearing a large dressmaker's box, which Judith was sure contained the new frail silk she had been wanting, But when the box was opened, it was found that the object of his trip had been to buy Thorne the long-promised new dress. It was then that Judith decided to post the letter she had written to Otis Hoos. Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. I'm the director and narrator of this mystery book by Margaret Eckhart. Have you guessed the title yet? I wanted to give a shout out to all of the cast because some of them played multiple characters. Adam Abrams, he's another Canadian uh, being represented in this book. And he plays old Judge Shane, the twins from Bridgeport, the gatekeeper in episode two as well as Jimmy Turner. Angel Black, she she has just been amazing. She's filled in all kinds of blanks throughout this book of casts who have one-liners. Here's a list of hers. Bishop's Widow, Martha Shook, Ellie Barkley, Jane Mitchell, Jenny Barkley, Mrs. Pruitt, and Nancy Turner. Ava Eames, she's another audiobook narrator that I've gotten to know over the last few years, and she plays Cousin Ludie. Carolyn Sen plays Miss Anne Tomlinson, who's probably my most favorite character in the book. Thanks, Carol. David Boisvert is my cousin, and he's down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. He started out helping me support the book by playing some of the background music, the piano. He plays a miscellaneous male at the end of the show. He does all of my piano backgrounds except a few. And he also plays the infamous Lucius Goff with his hat tilted just so. Garrett Odell, he plays Will Tomlinson, Richard's brother, the Sentinel editor, and Mr. Fairchild. Jack Hewson, he comes out of Australia and he supports us with Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Jack Rysider hosts a podcast called Darknet Diaries, which I got to listening to through my husband. Jack plays the voice of Otis Hughes. James Seabrook, he comes out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he plays the voice of Dr. Caxton. Now, James, he also runs a recording studio called Two Bodies of Water. So check him out. Jason Schnell is the next on our list, and he plays a couple of different roles in this production. He's also a family member as well. So thanks, Jason, for filling in. He reads the Bible readings, and he also plays the role of the drummer salesman. Next up, we have my husband, Jeff Moss. He plays the restaurant manager, and he's also the wonderful voice that introduces all the titles. Jen Davis, she plays two characters, Kate Turner and the miscellaneous female at the end of the story. Joseph Morani Jr., he plays Henry Shook, the neighbor. Kyle Marshall, he's also a local Calgarian. He plays Pete McGraw, And Alec Mitchell. Kylie Morgan, one of the stars of this book. She plays Judith Amory. And I'd like to thank Kylie for just hanging in there and really committing to the story over the last couple of years. Next up, we have London Moss. She plays Thorne, or AKA Cricket. She's also my daughter. Matt Sen who's Carol's husband, he plays the voice of Doc Baird, Richard's dear friend. Next up, we have Peggy Davis, who's Jen's mom, and she plays the voice of Millie. And I just also want to thank Peggy because she was still recording, even though she was moving from one place to another during this production. And then we have Rafe Telsch. And Rafe, thank you very much for all the effort you put into this. Man, some of your performances gave me chills. And just hanging in there as our main character, Richard Tomlinson. And then we have Rain Cruz. Now, Rain is Jen Davis's roommate, or was at the time. And Rain actually does wrestling announcing. She plays the role of Abigail Tomlinson. Next up, we have Rodla Schult, who's also a local Calgarian. He played the role of John Barkley, Richard's dear friend, and the pastor, Brother Jameson. And then we have Sam Springer, who started out with just a couple of lines as the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. But then he moved into Jesse Moffat's role. And boy, did he ever do a great job. Um, the last but not least, we have Zane Telge, who's Rafe's son. He plays the role of Ricky and Raji. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all the cast and all the characters they played. Thank you, everyone, for such a great performance, commitment to this amazing project. Damned cock and bull story you ever heard, the drummer dropped his
2: voice. It seems Tomlinson's wet claims that somebody has been throwing bricks through a certain window of their house. And the bricks, she claims, are being thrown at her. Yes,
0: they had heard about Judith's bricks.
2: You must have also heard what Tomlinson is saying about the origin of those bricks.
0: No, Lucius began to hope that he might be got back to Woodridge without mentioning the object of his call. When Richard appeared,
1: his hope seemed assured.